Hello, and welcome to Your Mom is a Creep, the podcast. I'm Sarah, and I'm your host because I'm a bona fide creepy mom myself. Creepy moms are just mothers and caretakers and friends, and yes, even dads. Anyone with what I call mom energy can be a creepy mom. And we use our fear and morbid curiosity to drive our nurturing instincts. On this podcast, we ask, what made you creepy? How does your creep factor change the way you take care of your people, your home, your pets? So the paranormal, the criminal, the cryptids, the magical, the extraterrestrial are all included in the home and the podcast of The Creepy Mom. So let's get into it. Welcome back, uh, creepy friends. First, let me say that I am so glad to be here sitting down here in my recording space talking to you right now. I'm just, I'm really proud of myself too. And um, the fact is I have had the motivation and the energy of like an actual brick lately, like just a brick on the floor. Uh, So yeah, it's just, wow, it's really big that I have made it this far today. Please feel free to send me gifts and nominate me for awards and create inspirational memes based on the fact that I wrote and recorded this episode today. I am available for life coaching sessions, FYI. Not really. That would be terrible. But um, yeah, I'm not ashamed to say that there has been a moment during this strange time when I really thought like, oh, no. Oh, no, I've given up completely. I kind of thought like, oh, this is it. My podcast is done. Um, I'll never shower or read or go outside or cook a meal ever again. I live on the floor now. So, you know, I had that moment because quarantine is a bitch. We all know that. It um, is not uncommon from what I am, from the feedback I'm taking in for to be having this experience, right? And let me be clear with you. Yes, I am still quarantined for the most part with my family. We have made that choice. Uh, We're not going to take any chances. We want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And I'm not going to talk about that anymore because it's not why we came here. And in fact, it is the opposite of why I came here. So... The other day, somebody on Twitter posted a question about, you know, why did you start a podcast? Like, why did you get into this? And it was directed at the general podcasting community, of which there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of us. And I quote tweeted it with my answer, which was something like, I started doing this to have something creative to myself of my own, something that was not about my family or taking care of anyone, something with no pressure and no hustle and no consequences, just me and my spooky, creepy niche interests alone together, getting into it. And when I typed that answer out, I was like, oh, yeah, shit. Like, I I did this for me because I love it. And it just reminded me of that and how important that is. And how important it is to indulge yourself and create for the sake of it and really unapologetically like what you like with like all your middle fingers up, however many middle fingers you have. I only have two, but maybe you have more. I don't know. All of them need to be up about this. And by God, I like ghosts and true crime and cults and aliens and cryptids and mysteries. Um, And I'm, I just, I'm really glad I'm here. Oh, and I like Ouija boards, which brings me to this. I think I have a new thing. I think I collect old Ouija boards now. I, If you don't already, please go 
follow me on Instagram at your mom is a creep. And you can see that just since quarantine started, I have bought myself two new spirit boards. One is an actual like Ouija, Ouija named, Ouija branded board from the 90s. And it's awesome. It's glow in the dark, has a glow in the dark planchette. And it has this fantastic 90s sun and moon motif, you know, that was like really popular in the 90s, if you remember that. And I love it because it makes me nostalgic for my childhood bedroom and my childhood like hippie self. And then I was also lucky enough, super randomly, to find um, a 1940s Hasco Mystic Board in its original box. And I am obsessed. It's awesome. Thank you to my friend, Jackie Wickens, who like sent me a Facebook message when she saw it on one of our local Facebook garage sale sites. And I love it so much. I like immediately messaged the guy and was like, here's here's the money. Please let me have this thing. And it's just super kitschy and interesting. It has in the bottom corner of it this funny little illustration of a Disney witch. I think it's the one from Snow White. And apparently at some point in the 1940s, Disney banned Hasco from using that image on their creepy little spirit board. I'm sure Disney was like, hell no, we're not going to be a part of your, you know, weird, dark game. And um, so, yeah, it was later banned and taken off the board. But mine is one of the originals, the one that I bought. And it's it's so cool. I love little pieces of like trivia and ephemera like that. I really love these spirit boards. Um as art pieces and historical pieces. To me, they're such a fascinating story. And um, the history of them, honestly, now come to think of it, should probably be an episode of this podcast. I mean, just, you know, just another reason for me to spend hours at night trolling eBay, Etsy. Uh, I'm not mad at that idea at all, actually. And I definitely have realized this is something that I'm probably going to do, collecting these things. And listen, I have gotten a few messages a few DMs asking me, have I sat down and used the boards yet? And the answer to that is no. I, y'all, you have to understand, I am a Capricorn with ADHD. Like if overthinking and over preparing and over list making and over researching were a sport, if any of those were sports, I would have seven Olympic gold medals. I mean, feelings about Ouija boards or spirit boards in general as actual tools to communicate with spirit are very all over the place and they're very heated. Some people hate them and some people think they're an irresponsible portal to allowing nasty things into your life. And some people seem to think that they're like any other sort of spiritual communication tool. And then some people think they're toys that have no consequence whatsoever. However, you know, No matter what anybody else feels, I am absolutely going to engage with my boards. I am not afraid to do it, but I do want to approach it really responsibly. And that means for me, for someone like me with my personality, that I need to read every book on the subject and read every article and every Reddit post and watch videos and, uh, I don't know, interview people and write my own protection rituals and spells and bless my home probably and clean my whole house, I guess, and probably redecorate my family room so it has like an appropriate seance vibe to respect the board. So yeah, I will get there, you guys. But the way my mind works, I just, I never get anywhere the easy way. Like I have never done anything quickly or made a decision, you know, fast like that. I just, yeah. And and I will absolutely be updating on the experience and on using the boards on the podcast and on my Instagram about the situation. 
Did I already say that you should follow me? I'm not sure if I did. I think you should. Uh, yeah, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at your mom is a creep. And who knows? I might have some pretty profound experiences. I might, you know, knock over some candles and burn down my gym like Britney Spears. Just kidding. I don't. I don't have a home gym. What are we talking about? I have like eight pound weights in my basement. I have a yoga mat. I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how you burn down. If you haven't seen this, Britney Spears posted this video where she was talking about going back into her gym after she burned it down a couple months ago. Best video ever. Anyways, I hope it's a cool experience. I hope something profound happens. I am very, very open to these things. So we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed. But uh, moving on from, you know, my little new creepy mom collecting hobby, we are going to go straight into part two of the Detroit occult murder stories. Uh, a series of strange murders that were all lumped together under the spooky macabre headline by the newspapers all in the early 20th century in Motor City. The last episode, I had my husband on and I told him about the Witch of Delray, a possible prolific serial killer, a neighborhood witch, a part-time shape-shifting wolf. She was many things. And so now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about the events that happened and fell under this, you know, um, banner of the Detroit occult murder. So it's just going to be me today. I decided to keep it, you know, keep variety going. And yeah, I'm just going to tell you the story today. Thanks everybody who said that they really enjoyed uh, when I had Dave on again. He really appreciated that. And so did I. I love hanging out with him. But yeah, it's just going to be you and me today. So yeah, sit back and allow me to tell you the tale of Richard Harris, the self-proclaimed king in Detroit, and the Evangelista family murders. Let's get creepy. Let's get into it. Let's transport, shall we, creepy friends, to only a year after Rose Verez, the Witch of Del Rey, was arrested for the murder of at least 10 men at her boarding house, and consequently convicted of the murder of just one. In November of 1932, a Detroit man that all the newspaper clippings refer to as a cult leader named Richard Harris was arrested for the brutal and strange murder of a Mr. James J. Smith, according to newspapers, a supposed member of his very own cult. Now, it's important to note that some, but not all, journalistic sources are calling Harris a member of the Order of Islam. He's a Muslim. And after seeing this noted in about 50% of the resources I read about this story, I realized, oh, it's just 1930s America, and they think Islam is a cult. They're not talking about two different things. So, you know, Richard Harris was apparently Muslim and Black and self-aggrandizing, so the Detroit Free Press gave him the status of a leader over a small group of religious followers, although there doesn't seem to be any truth in that. So on November 22nd of 1932, police found the body of James J. Smith tied to a haphazardly built altar inside the home of Richard Harris. 
James had been stabbed to death with a silver knife through his heart. Now, Robert Harris claimed that this was a religious sacrifice and that James had volunteered. He willingly participated in this religious ceremony where he died. However, that did not explain why Richard had smashed James over his head with a rear axle from a car before dragging his body inside and stabbing him on this DIY altar. This was all confessed by Robert Harris. He's the one who said that he did this. He then also declared himself a king, the king of Detroit, and made known his intention to murder several other people, including two judges and the mayor of Detroit himself. According to Richard Harris's wife, who must have been living a difficult life, he had been, quote, insane for some time, and she already lived in fear of her husband, uh, who had gone off the rails a while ago and had threatened to behead her and their two young children. If you do a little of your own research on this case, you can find the transcript of Harris's court date in front of the judge after he was arrested for murder. It is wild. It is antagonistic, and he argues with the judge sen senselessly over being the king of the courtroom, over having to take his hat off, and he even attempts to just, you know, like, leave, like, walk out when he feels like it's over. It's quite a right, and I highly suggest reading it. It's, it's absurd. It's absurdist. But I didn't want to subject you guys to me play-acting it out as the two men in this bizarre conversation. Now, I am of the opinion that at the time that this happened, a responsible journalist would have done better by the headline to describe this as a case of untreated mental illness leading to a tragic, senseless murder, rather than describing it as a voodoo cult affair, which is what they called it. But again, journalism was more like a nickname for the practice of newspaper storytelling at this point in our history. And the Order of Islam, to which he did belong at the time, he did, in Detroit, was very clear in speaking out against Harris's actions. They told the Detroit News in a statement on Wednesday, November 23rd, 1932, the day after the murders, that the society cannot be blamed for anything that he did. Harris had no standing in the order and was not regarded as a leader. Many people avoided him because of the wild things he sometimes said. And a spokesman for the Order of Islam named Ugam Ali told them, We teach a philosophy similar to the Golden Rule, and our fundamental purpose is to uplift our own people. Unquote. So, you know, nobody told Richard Harris to murder anyone. He was clearly somebody for whom sanity had left the building a long time ago. But another perfect example of how fear-mongering and racism and ignorance and journalistic sensationalism that Americans seem so bloodthirsty for still changed this story about a criminal with psychotic tendencies into a story about his cult and simultaneously vilified a minority and a religion. Well, if that isn't a wham-bam thank you, ma'am, of USA bullshit right there, I don't know what is. We're not surprised. No one is surprised. But we can still be sad and angry. Now, strange and unsettling on their own, 
the Michigan murderous tales of Richard Harris and the Witch of Delray came on the heels of one of the most horrifying homicidal cases that I've ever heard of, and I have heard of a lot of homicide. On the morning of July 4th, Independence Day, 1929, a man named Vincent Elias headed over to the home of his friend and business associate, a man named Benny Evangelista. Vincent was working with Evangelista to acquire some farmland in a real estate deal, and he sought to go over there on that sunny morning and discuss it with him further. But when Vincent arrived at the Evangelista family home at 3587 St. Oban Street in Detroit, he let himself in and he headed to Benny's office on the first floor of the house. What he found was surely the fodder of his nightmares for the rest of his life. Benny Evangelista's dead body was sitting in his desk chair with his severed head sitting on the floor near his feet and his hands folded neatly in his lap, which is an extra creepy detail. Around the dismembered head on the floor had been arranged three large framed photographs of a child in a coffin. That was all that Vincent needed to see to turn his ass around and run out of the room, run out of the house, and go get the police to the scene. And when they arrived, the police found even more horror. Upstairs in the house, they found the body of Benny's wife in their marriage bed. Mrs. Santina Evangelista's head had also been severed from her body. Still in her arms, lying in the bed, was her 18-month-old son, Mario, whose skull had been crushed. Across the hall, in another upstairs bedroom, the Evangelista's daughters, 7-year-old Angelina, 5-year-old Margaret, and 4-year-old Jean, were all dead in their bedroom, having been hacked to death with an axe. One girl's arm had been severed from her body in what appeared to be a defensive wound. No one in the Evangelista family was spared from this mysterious massacre. It was a horror show of the like that most police officers of the time, and indeed most communities, never have the misfortune to see or even hear about. There is something so extra disgusting and horrifying about um, brutal, violent murders like this of children. And I know I'm not I'm not, you know, uh, telling you anything you don't know, but this reminds me a lot of like the Velasca Axe murder house. And I don't know what motivates somebody or what goes loose in their, you know, brain pan to commit acts upon such vulnerable individuals. There is nothing an 18-month-old baby can do. They can't testify against you. They can't remember. They can't defend themselves. It's just pure evil. So... Let's talk about Benny Evangelista for a moment. Benny was an Italian immigrant who had come to America in 1904 in search of a better life like so many other immigrants were doing at the time. Good for him. And he was born in Naples in 1885. Benny was described as clever and enterprising by others in his community. By himself, he was described as a, quote, divine prophet. Upon his arrival in Detroit, Benny worked regularly as a carpenter and a woodworker, and he also quickly and smartly put his money that he was earning into real estate, and he established himself as a pretty thriving landlord in the area, owning many buildings. But on the side, Benny Evangelista established his passion practice, which was healing, 
and teaching with occult and spiritual knowledge. He was apparently an herbalist and a spell worker who, according to his own records and his own clients, used chanting, animal sacrifice, and dance to work his energetic magic for his customers. And he did all of this out of the basement of the Evangelista family home and also out of his office where they did find a fake wig and beard that he apparently used I don't know, maybe to lend himself some gravitas in this role. Referred to as a, quote, hex man by his neighbors, Benny reportedly cured people of ailments with his magic. And for a fee, he also cursed people with his practice. Different kind of magic. Benny was so confident of his own spiritual divinity and connection that he had authored a four-volume collection of books entitled... The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science in Detroit, Michigan. Long title, fierce title, big claims there. I mean, he's definitely like reaching for the stars with titling his book. Um, so this was a text that Benny had written that he declared he was delivered telepathically directly from God in the middle of the night, exclusively between 12 and 3 a.m. So God keeps very specific hours. In the basement is where he created a sort of temple or church to his own homegrown magic and faith and cult. And on to his religion, his, his cult gatherings, he bestowed the name the Union Federation of America, which is the most disappointing and underwhelming name for a cult I have ever heard. The Union Federation of America. It just, I don't know. It sounds like Teamsters? Plumbers? I just, I don't know. It doesn't give me any like magical, spiritual, vibey tickles. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry about that, Benny. But whatever. It was obviously meaningful to him, right? And down there in this basement, Benny created a really disturbing, unsettling diorama that neighbors reported being able to kind of like peek in on from the street outside. You know, they could kind of see through the windows into his basement and they could see um, this diorama, which was composed of these really grotesque wax figures that were strung from the ceiling in a very specific arrangement to depict the celestial planets. The focal point of this was a giant paper mache eyeball that represented the sun, which had a lot of a lot of significance in this religion um, of the Union Federation of America. A large sign above this big diorama display read Great Celestial Planet Exhibition. And it seemed like it was set up for the purpose of being viewed by paying patrons. Sort of a museum, a testament museum to his faith that he had invented. Nearby was an altar, which was kind of indecipherable. It didn't seem to be anything that anybody could really identify practice-wise. But it had herbs and homemade potions and knives and bottles and jars of things that could not be identified after he was gone. The room was also decorated with a bulging green cloth on the walls that had been pinned and was reminiscent of a padded cell in an asylum. Now, I'm going to post pictures of Benny Evangelista's bizarre diorama on my Instagram when this episode is released, just so that you, friend, have a brand new thing to see when you close your eyes at night and try to sleep. You're welcome. 
Now, upon the discovery of this gruesomely murdered family, police obviously began investigating inside the house for clues about the murderer and the motive. They unfortunately failed to prevent a stream of neighbors and gawkers from moving through the building, and they lost the integrity of who knows how much evidence from their crime scene in the process. I mean, this is also really reminiscent of the Velasca Axe murder house and lots of other cases. I don't know why police just opened the doors wide on every crime scene back then and just let every looky-loo kind of like walk through and touch some stuff and maybe take a souvenir. I think, you know, that's kind of a, that should have been obvious even from the beginning of criminal science. You know, I, I wasn't there. I'm going to try and withhold judgment a little bit. Uh, so the only hard evidence that they found in the house and then protected from corruption was a fingerprint made in blood on the front doorknob. There were also some some footprints in blood through the house, but they couldn't really um, guarantee the integrity of those footprints or where they'd come from. Inside Benny's office, they also found a collection of women's underwear, each one labeled with the name of its owner. They could only speculate at the time that these pieces had something to do with the spells and curses that Benny was performing for his clients. Now, as somebody who dabbles in magic myself, I'm unfamiliar with underwear magic, but I'm definitely going to Google it. I would love to know what the purpose of this was and how he used women's underwear in his magic practice. Something tells me there might have been like an ulterior motive. We, you know, we don't know. I'm not trying to cast any shame. He's a victim. But I'm just curious exactly how magical this underwear was. Now, during the investigation, it was also uncovered that the photographs of the child in a coffin, which were found arranged around Benny's dead body and his severed head, were pictures that had been taken of his son, who had passed away several years earlier. The significance of their placement around Benny, though, remains a mystery. Nobody knows why they were placed as they were around his body. It seems significant. It seems symbolic of something. And then later, the press did get a hold of these police reports, and they found out some of the more strange, um, intoxicating details about Benny's life and some of the more perplexing things that were found inside his home. And newspapers ran away with the story of the gruesome occult-related killing of a local immigrant family. But my question is, was it an occult-related murder or a coincidence? I mean, this is a man who practiced these esoteric arts and proclaimed himself a spiritual leader, and he could have been murdered for an entirely different reason. There isn't actually a lot of reasons here to believe that he was killed for anything related to his occult practices. Benny may have been a, quote, religious fanatic, according to some of his neighbors, and was quite likely considered a kook by people who interacted with him casually or encountered him during one of his frequent sidewalk street preaching sermons. But he didn't really have enemies. He didn't have a criminal history outside of one misdemeanor citation for installing plumbing wrong in one of his buildings. He operated all of his ventures legally and was known to be a family man. For him and his family to be slaughtered so violently was baffling. A $1,000 reward was offered by police and... Because of the notoriety of this case and the nature of it and how much attention it was getting, it did get 
false confessions, as these cases often do. And the most notable false confession was by James Harris, the self-proclaimed King of Detroit and violent murderer that we already discussed earlier in this episode. He tried to take responsibility for this crime, but his fingerprint did not match the fingerprint in blood at the house. And it was eventually established he could not have done it. I still don't know what the motivation is for claiming murders that you didn't do. I, everyone has their reasons, right? So also law enforcement was approached by psychics and they offered their services, but truth was not uncovered by any of these measures. Despite that, there were some standout suspects uh, eventually found in this case. A criminally insane man named Aurelius Angelino was a suspect who stood out for many reasons. Police discovered that he had immigrated to America from Italy at around the same time as Benny himself did. Early on, after the two men arrived in the U.S., they had both lived simultaneously in York, Pennsylvania, and had at least known each other fairly well. While some reports go as far as to say that they were like close friends and, you know, spent a lot of time together, there was reason for the police to believe that Angelino was also a religious fanatic and possibly even in the same religious cult as Benny at one time in the past. Aurelius Angelino was put into an insane asylum in 1919 after he was convicted of murdering both of his children with an axe. And next, in 1923, he escaped that asylum and he was never seen again. He goes completely off the radar. Now, the big twist here is that while they were investigating the Evangelista family murders, police matched Benny Evangelista's prints to fingerprints found in the Angelino home in York, near the bodies of the murdered Angelino children. So Benny Evangelista's fingerprints found at the murder scene of two children, the two children of this man who was eventually convicted. So in light of this, law enforcement and press both speculated that perhaps Aurelius Angelino had been framed for this awful act by Benny, and he'd come all the way to Detroit for revenge after years of stewing in his pent-up rage. It was as compelling a motive as anyone could come up with in this baffling case, but no evidence. And, you know, like I said, nobody, he went completely off the grid. Nobody ever heard anything about Aurelius Angelino ever again. There is no record of him. Another suspect was 42-year-old Umberto Tuccio, or Tuccio, I'm going to say Tuccio, T-U-C-C-H-I-O, who, along with a friend, had visited the Evangelista home the night before the bodies were discovered. Now, Tuccio was visiting the house that night with his friend to pay Evangelista the very last bit of money he owed him on a house that Benny had sold to him. According to him, as well as his accompanying friend, it was a perfectly normal visit. And after the money was exchanged, they left the house, they went out drinking to celebrate, and they knew absolutely nothing about what terrible events occurred later on that night. But doing their due diligence, the police found a keen edge banana knife, which is like a small knife with a curved blade that you would use to cut bananas, apparently. And they also found a pair of oddly clean, like spotless, just freshly cleaned work boots, both behind the house where Tuccio lived. 
And in addition to that, they discovered that only a few months prior, he had stabbed his own brother-in-law to death over a dispute about money. Now, it was, I guess, decided that it was self-defense. And Tuccio wasn't prosecuted. He got away with the murder for some unknown reason. Umberto Tuccio also had four roommates at the house where he lived. And this was a house that was nearby the Evangelista home. And these four roommates, they were just, you know, let's say hesitant to talk about Umberto to police. They were reluctant. But one finally gave in and admitted that he had seen Umberto come home to their residence that night, the night of the murders, through the back door, carrying a large canvas bag. Now, that bag was never located by police, and the newspapers reported that Umberto fled back to Italy almost immediately after being questioned by police. The fact that he was the last person to see Benny alive that we know of, that he had access to the right kind of weapon, that he had a very clear history of violence, all of these things made him the most practical of all the suspects. However, there was no direct evidence and there was no motive. I mean, there was no history of dispute over this house. There was nothing stolen from the Evangelista house. And there was no suspicious property found on Tuccio that could have come from the Evangelista house. And he had an alibi. It was still a complete enigma. And I will quickly mention the least plausible of the theories to me, which is that Benny was murdered by the Black Hand. Now, the Black Hand was an Italian group that preyed on wealthy Italian immigrants with extortion. So the police found some letters among Benny's possessions in his office. They were all more than six months old, and they claimed to be from the Black Hand. This this Italian criminal enterprise, which did date back to the 1750s, and who did specialize in writing these handwritten threatening letters, which had ominous, uh, kind of badass um, illustrations of things, like a heart with a knife through it. And they would always draw like a black hand on it as part of their calling card. Um, so these were extortion type letters that were threatening Benny. And they said cryptic things like, quote, it's your last chance. And it all sounds, you know, suspicious and maybe like a good lead. It's incriminating. But apparently by 1929, the Black Hand basically didn't exist anymore. And it had been replaced by the more sophisticated actual Italian mafia. And they used other ways, um, other strategies of extortion, I will say. The letters, according to law enforcement, were probably fakes done by someone trying to get money out of Benny. But they had no reason to believe that this person who would write them would go as far as to wait six months and then violently, gruesomely murder Benny and his entire family, including all of his children, in the middle of the night, and then not take anything from the house. Uh, just a side note, I do there. I think there is actually like a black hand um, subplot in Peaky Blinders, if I'm not mistaken. I think Adrian Brody is like an Italian black hand member i'm i'm getting like these flashes of this and i love that show um and you should definitely watch it if you haven't i mean it's a great show it also has cillian murphy and thomas hardy and adrian brody and like just boatloads of other incredibly attractive men in like these fantastic 1930s suits i don't know i highly recommend it that was just something that popped into my head right now 
So, to this day, we don't know who stole into the Evangelista family home in the middle of the night and slaughtered them all. It's a tragic story with some wild twists and turns and characters. The home itself was torn down several years ago, since apparently no one wanted to live in a home with such a dark past. But, like I always say, no one called me, no one ever does. Uh, if I am ever in Detroit, which I hope I am because I've heard it's, you know, rad, or if you are ever in Detroit, it would be a definite spot to drive by and try to get like an energy vibe off of, I think. Although now it is just an empty lot, people have reported strange events there, strange sounds, even a headless figure that moves across the property during the night. And those are the stories that were together not super accurately described as the Detroit occult murders. Thank you for listening to me tell a tale today. And please let me know what you think. Let me know if you'd ever heard of these tales before because I had not. Let me know if you live in Detroit and if you've ever visited one of these sites or been on the Detroit Haunted Walking Tour. I'm all ears. I always am. Please, if you happen to think of it or you just want to put a smile on my face because you're a nice person, subscribe to Your Mom is a Creep on iTunes and rate and review it. I would um, much oblige or I would be much obliged. I can't I can't remember the way, right way to say that. I would appreciate it. I will be back soon with another creepy story and I will miss you until then. Creepy mom out. Bye, creepy moms. <laughs> <laughs>